I'm Scott Walston, uh, President and Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Thank you all for coming here for this discussion of Huawei. I'm going to start off just doing a little introduction here by the podium, then I'm going to go sit here uh, because it's not me you want to hear from. I'll just be a voice off stage, kind of peppering them with questions. Uh, but just to, to start off, um, new generations of wireless technology often come with fights over various things. With 3G, it was GSM versus CDMA. 4G was WiMAX versus LTE. Um, and different manufacturers and countries may do better or worse, depending on who wins those various fights. But with 5G, it's been different. This transition comes at the time of a, of a confluence of increased cybersecurity concerns, tensions between the US and China, Huawei's relatively sudden emergence as not just low cost, but a high quality provider of 5G equipment. And as everyone knows, the US government says that, says, uh, that Huawei allows the Chinese government to use its equipment to aid espionage making the equipment a national security threat. Almost every major US provider has agreed not to use it. Um, some countries, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, I guess, have agreed, also agreed not to use it. But others, like the UK and Germany, have not made that pledge. Um, the security concerns, to those of us uh, lay people, um, people like me who know nothing, uh, certainly seem plausible. Why wouldn't the Chinese government try to uh, take that kind of advantage if that opportunity exists? But on the other hand, um, these concerns peaking at the same time as broader trade disagreements with China is um, convenient, and it plays into some of our biggest fears regarding emerging powers and protectionist impulses. Uh, and just last week, the UK's uh, Huawei Cybersecurity Evaluation Center said that their analysis of the equipment, quote, reveals serious and systematic defects in Huawei's software, engineering, and cybersecurity competence. For this reason, NCSC continues to advise the Oversight Board that it is only appropriate to provide limited technical assurance in the security risk management possible for equipment currently deployed in the UK, since NCSC has not yet seen a credible remediation plan. They also concluded that it does not believe the defects are identified. The defects identified are a result of Chinese state interference. So it's interesting also to see that how this was reported in the US versus the UK. In the US, this seemed to be reported as Huawei's equipment is terrible and you can't trust it. And in the UK, it was reported as, well, we can manage this risk. Um, and you're reading from the exact same document. But as policy analysts and just citizens, it's hard to know what to think about this issue or even really how to think about it. Um, you know, how should we weigh the risks and costs of a ban? What are the best policies going forward? Is there anything the comp uh, government or companies can tell us to shed more light on the truth? And that is what we're going to discuss today. Um, I'm just going to quickly introduce the panelists, and then we will get started. Um, I'm going to go in alphabetical order. I think more or less in alphabetical order. Um, so, yeah. uh, so first uh, is um, uh, Dr. Charles uh, Clancy, who is um, the executive director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. He's also Bradley Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering, and he served as a researcher at the National Security Agency. Uh, we have Eric Geller, who's the cybersecurity reporter from Politico, and his beat includes cyber policymaking at OMB and the National Security Council, Amer uh, American cyber diplomacy efforts at the State Department, cybercrime prosecutions at the Justice Department, and digital security research at the Commerce Department. Um, then we have uh, Jamel Jafar, who is executive director of the National Security Institute and director of the National Security Law and Policy Program at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Um, he is also Vice President for Strategy and Business Development at IronNet Cybersecurity. And then we have Sam Sachs, who is a 
Cybersecurity Policy and China Digital Economy Fellow at, New, at the New America Foundation. Her research focuses on emerging information and communication technology uh, policies globally, particularly China. She leads New America's DigiChina Data Governance Project, which includes looking at China's data regime in global comparative context as debates about data policy unfold in Europe, the US, and across Asia. And she leads New America's New York uh, Cybersecurity and Digital Economy Roundtable Series, bringing together experts to discuss cyber and tech policy uh, issues. And we have um, Harry Wingo, who is the chair of the Cybersecurity Department at the College of Information and Cyberspace at the National Defense University. Um, he served as president and CEO of the DC Chamber of Commerce, senior policy counsel at Google, counsel to the Senate Committee on Science, uh, Commerce and Transportation, special counsel to the General Counsel of the Federal Communications Commission, which is right over there. Um, and, uh, I don't know, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, and he also um, was spent six years as a Navy SEAL. Um, I'm not sure there's anything left to do <laughs> after all that. So, uh, so with that, and having spoken so quickly, I don't know that anybody can understand me, but I wanted to get my stuff out of the way. Um, I'd like to start with, um, with Charles. Uh, if you could give us a little overview of the technical aspects of this. So when we say that there are you know, problems with Huawei's equipment or things that people are worried about, what exactly are we talking about? What is it that people are worried about? All right. Is it working? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you very much for, for convening this panel. I think we're all excited to, to speak on this topic, uh, one of, uh, of particular importance. Um, so from, from a technical perspective, I'll put on my electrical engineering professor hat for a moment. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, uh, the Huawei manufactures uh, and sells, and in many countries operates, um, uh, uh, networking equipment. Uh, this is broader than just cellular networking equipment. It's, it's internet switches and routers as well. Uh, but a lot of the current concern is around, in particular, the 5G networking equipment. Um, and as a result, there are a variety of sort of technical threat vectors that people are particularly concerned about. Um, one is around uh, the, the sort of the, the supply chain and the manufacturing process. Um, there's a lot of concern about uh, China's role in the standards committees and the influence that they're having over the technology ecosystem as it matures. Um, although I think that the, the cyber risk is, a, I think, a little less uh, uh, significant there. That's really more of an economic risk, I think, in terms of global competitiveness from an economic perspective. Um, as you get into the, uh, the, the actual equipment itself, um, there's a concern that there might be backdoors introduced. Um, there's a concern that the code might just be buggy, as we saw with the UK report. In particular, in the UK report uh, from last week, it basically noted that, 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 that there were a lot of bugs uh, in, in the code base that went into the Huawei equipment. And those bugs all could lead to cyber vulnerabilities that could be exploitable by the Chinese government or by whomever and wanted to discover and, and exploit them. Um, so that's that's one set of concerns. Uh, the other is 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 that of a software update. So for example, if, if Huawei is providing um, uh, patches uh, to equipment as as bugs are discovered and and, and uh, software needs to be updated. Uh, software updates could include uh, backdoors that would allow third-party access to the systems. Um, and then the, the, I think the area where I personally have, have the most concern is just the fact that in many countries, Huawei actually operates the equipment on behalf of the local um, telecommunications companies. Uh, essentially, the, the, it's, a, it's a fully shrink-wrapped 5G network in a box, essentially, where Huawei not only sells you the equipment, 
but also provides the managed services to operate and maintain it for you. Um, and in those cases, they are the administrators on the system, right? So you don't need a backdoor because they're already in the house, if you will, um, and are under contract to, to manage it. So all of those represent concerns uh, that, that people have in the technology space where there's risk. Uh, the question then is how to manage that risk. And of course, we have a variety of options from uh, here in the US, we have a variety of different bans uh, that are percolating through different uh, legislative and regulatory ecosystems. Um, in the UK, you have a, a more of an inspection uh, regime that seeks to manage risk. Um, there's a, so there's a variety of ways that you can seek to manage risk. Um, and I think all what we're trying to figure out is what's the, what's the best approach and, and whose characterization of the risk, I think, is, uh, um, is, is most accurate or plausible. Um, so it, it, there, there are different ways of, uh, of, of looking at the risk and we manage them in different ways. Eric, you've reported on how different countries are approaching this differently. Um, where, why do they, how do, how do different countries look at it and why are we in, the, in this sort of state of some thinking it, it's an unmanageable risk and others thinking that it they can? Well, part of the, the reason that you see that um, divergence is a lot of companies, especially in Europe, have much stronger ties to China economically than we do in the United States. And so uh, I think it's fair to say a lot of these decisions are not based on a pure risk calculation about equipment, um, based on what would happen to our economy if uh, the second largest economy in the world decided that we were uh, a trade adversary uh, overnight because we banned one of their uh, most famous products. Um, so that's the, the, the broader context is uh, the U.S. is fortunate to not be that dependent on trade with China um, as much as we do have this trade war going on right now. Um, it would be a lot worse for our European partners if they made this decision to, to ban Huawei products. The other thing is you have a different philosophy overseas, I would say, especially in Europe, about the possibility of doing source code review as an assurance mechanism uh, to see whether there are flaws in the code, backdoors, uh, that kind of thing. Um, so I, when I spoke to Rob Strayer, who's the, the top cyber official at the State Department, one of the things he said was, we constantly tell our allies when we're talking to them that they should not count on source code review because software changes too rapidly. Uh, it's not feasible to do source code review on a product that is dynamic. Um, that's sort of a, an example, he would argue, of, uh, of our allies bringing in this kind of, this model from a, a more static time when it was easier to look at something and determine the risk that it posed. Today, that's not really possible with telecommunications uh, equipment that's so heavily dependent on software. And with 5G, that is the risk, especially as compared to 3G and 4G. Um, it's much more software dependent uh, than previous generations wireless networks. So I would add that as the second factor, right? How, how much do you trust in source code review? And what we're seeing right now with some, even some NATO allies and EU members is uh, they haven't yet made a decision to, to ban or not to ban, but they are saying things like uh, we're looking at source code review as an option to mitigate that risk. So those are two uh, major factors in determining uh, you know, where these countries shake out. Again, based on a, a common set of facts, if you want to look at things like the UK report, um, the publicly available information is there for anybody to read, but those are two of the, I would say, the biggest reasons why you see different companies uh, and countries coming to different conclusions about that data. So, I mean, the, the first reason is that um, basically they, they, may, they may see the same harms that we do, um, but the costs of banning it are much higher for them than for us. Um, but the second is that they actually think they can do something about the concerns if they're to the extent that they're real, right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think obviously um, we, we face a real challenge here with this uh, with this particular company. It's not just Huawei, it's ZT, it's other it's other companies in this in this space who are uh, market dominators uh, globally, in part they're market dominators because uh, they benefit from all sorts of benefits from the Chinese government, low interest loans, um, a research and development base that was largely stolen, right? That wasn't developed, uh, that wasn't developed uh, domestically. Um, there's a reason why a uh, Huawei router looks a lot like a Cisco router. It's because it largely is a Cisco router. Um, and so, um, you know, and then, and then there are all sorts of other things going on. We saw recently uh, the, uh, the reports about Huawei and CT and their efforts to evade U.S. sanctions on Iran um, and, and the outcomes of that. Um, and so there are challenges, both foreign policy challenges, but also very real technology, technolo technology challenges uh, with these companies. And, and the risk is real, right? Um, as, um, you know, as uh, Charles laid out, um, there are a number of vectors on which you might see risk. These risks aren't limited, to be fair, uh, to Chinese equipment. These risks are present in any uh, major telecommunications gear, right? Whether it's because of dynamic updates, uh, or because of hardware or firmware uh, modifications or backdoors, or just simply uh, uh, vulnerabilities, um, you know, uh, you can you can imagine what in which you're uh, concealing a backdoor, sort of, you know, access, you know, through obscurity, right? Simply hiding it in the noise of a bunch of other vulnerabilities that are that appear to be uh, unintentional. And so, um, and and as Charles Crosby pointed out, you don't need a backdoor if you're the administrator, if you're running the network. I mean, in a lot of these countries, um, uh, because uh, many of these countries are countries skipping over a generation of wireline gear or or even or even wireless gear and going straight to 5G. Um, you know they don't have the technological capability at home to even deliver the services, and so buying it as sort of as as was described as a as a uh, as a network in a box um, is a very appealing thing, particularly when it comes at a low at a low cost. And uh, and you know in part for China this is also an economic advantage, right? Being able to get these. Uh, capabilities in place allows you to leverage that for future sales of other services and gear uh, down the road, and so uh, it's both a it's both a uh, economic development move, it's a strategic move, and it's a potential intelligence collection capability. And so, all for all those reasons, right, it is very hard for the U.S. government um, and allied governments to stomach um, uh, you know adopting these into the core of their networks. At the same time, you have a situation in the U.K. where British Telecom has deployed Huawei gear at, at parts of their network. Um, perhaps, you know, there's a debate about how that went down and, and where that happened. Um, and you've got the UK National Cybersecurity Center saying, look, we can take this, this incremental approach and evaluate each piece of gear on its merits um, and each software update as we need to because we can take the current software update, the next build, compare them, identify the differences, and, and then look at the code review just on that part. Yes, it will be slow, but it can be done and we can, particularly for national security systems and the like, um, we can do it we can do it efficiently. Now, that is an open question for debate. It is interesting to see two allies that are typically so close on uh, issues of intelligence collection um, and and cybersecurity, almost inseparable, um, being you know sort of at odds on this question. It's unusual to have the US, Canada, UK, and Australia in one place, sorry, and, and Australia, New Zealand in one place, and the UK are literally our right-hand partner in some of these efforts um, on the other side of the debate. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. In the long run, the hard part is, is this sort of like just standing against the tide, right? Uh, the reality is that Huawei is deployed globally. Um, they've benefited from these uh, these benefits from the Chinese government. Um, and are we simply, you know, trying to try to stem an inevitable flow? And I think that is part of what uh, the government continues to struggle with today. Um, I tend to be one of those people who says, you know, you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do, right? And and you stand against that flow as long as you can. Um, but that may not be the right economic or the right national security answer at this point. And maybe the answer is, 
what the British have done, which is just try and mitigate as best you can. So you see this in, in, uh, in basically two ways. One is that there is an economic factor, um, and uh, and maybe you can say a little bit more about why you think that part matters, um, why we should be why we should be concerned about that, and not just take advantage of cheap equipment that of course benefits 5G build out and so on. And then the other is the security issues. Well, it's, it's economic in two ways, right? One, it's, it's an ability to deploy a whole set of gear that is at the core of the modern communications interface, the modern um, you know, global communication infrastructure, and then leverage that for all sorts of things, whether it's, ask, whether it's access to uh, those markets for other equipment or other uh, services on top of that capability. Um, but it's also economic in the following sense, right? Which is that we know that um, China has been on a multi-year, over a decade uh, effort to steal American intellectual property and to repurpose that for economic purposes back home. Um, and uh, that's been a huge boon to the Chinese economy because it's allowed uh, the development of an economic base that didn't require the enormous amount of investment that uh, the US companies put into that. Now, that being said, in the long run, that's also challenged the United States because as the United States trends more and more away from a manufacturing economy to an innovation economy, that intellectual property becomes more and more core to the economic success and economic health of this country. And so. Um, if it's walking out the back door, or if the systems we're operating on enable it, even in part, to walk out the back door, that is a huge gap. Now, this isn't the only way that people steal technology, and China's not the only country that does this, right? Um, but it is the single largest beneficiary of it. You know, my, my, uh, my current CEO and the former director of NSA, Keith Alexander, referred to it as the greatest transfer of wealth in human history, and that's, and that's just factually true. Um, how you quantify that, might, there might be debates about that, but I don't think objectively anybody can dispute the fact that this has taken place, um, and that it is, it is an economic <coughs> challenge in the United States. And you know, you may debate uh, President Trump, President Trump's national security policy, or economic policy. And there are a lot of good reasons to debate it. But one point that he made that I think everyone sort of accepts at face value, which is correct, is that economic security in the modern era is national security, and frankly, always has been. Um, who else sells five G in a box? Who else sells five G in a box? Great question. Who else wants to sell five G in a box? Or no, could? I mean, there's demand for it, yeah. right? Um, and it sounds like this is something that they developed indigenously. Um, and so these countries that are going to rely on it, who would they use? Yeah, I mean, they could use they could use American telecom manufacturers or European manufacturers, right? Uh, that that develop their developing these capabilities. The question is, at what price, right? And on and with what capability, right? Um, you know, Huawei makes cheap gear, right? Is it good? There's a debate about how good it is, right? There are plenty of people who say, look, it's serviceably good. It's good enough to get the job done and at this price point. It is absolutely worth buying. And better than 10 years ago. And better than 10 years ago, absolutely. And they're, and they're increasingly better. You know, there is a there is a sort of virtual circle here for a while, which is that once you're in and you're able to get the economic benefits of the sale, right, you can rebuild and make it better, right? So that's not to say that they're always selling terrible gear or their gear is even terrible now, right? The question of whether it's a national security threat is a different debate. Um, just briefly to, to answer the question about who else does this, I think there's also an So the fact that you have Huawei, ZTE, and then two financially weak um, options in Nokia, in Nokia and Ericsson, and that's what you've got. And that's its own kind of source, that's its own issue. And so one of the, I, I recently got back um, from the UK where I was with the National Cybersecurity Center, and one of the arguments that they you know, were said is, look, you don't want to have a duopoly where you eliminate Huawei and then you're just left with Nokia and Ericsson. 
But then the pushback is, if you accept the premise that Huawei is a bad actor, isn't it better to eliminate a bad actor and have two rather than a bad actor and two mediocre players? So I think this gets at a larger sort of systemic issue, which is the health of this overall industry. Um, but what I want I want to talk about, so I specialize in uh, Chinese tech and cyber policy and spend a lot of time looking at the relationship between Chinese companies, the Chinese government. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about what would Huawei be implored to do by the Chinese government. And here I think it's important just to distinguish between two risks. One, as, as Dr. Clancy mentioned, is backdoors. And the other is a hypothetical future war scenario or a crisis. So my view, and I would love to hear thoughts of the other panelists on this, is that the likelihood of having an intentional vulnerability universally deployed in the equipment is, at this moment, is, is very small. Because if it were found, it, it would be found out, um, and it would be extremely damaging to Huawei's corporate reputation at a time where it, is, it, it must have um, global markets outside of China. And so it would undermine trust in that. Um, the issue that I'm more concerned about, rather than a sort of universal backdoor in the equipment, and we should say at this point there is no public um, and potentially even no classified evidence to support that. What does worry me is this hypothetical situation of what Huawei would be implored to do by the Chinese government. So here you get into a lot of debates, and I've heard you know, there's, there's mentions of, oh, China, China has a suite of laws that would require Huawei to assist um, the intelligence and security services from the national intelligence law, the cybersecurity law, the counterterrorism law, the list goes on. I do think it's interesting, though, that the narrative shifts a lot. So a lot of the times people say, oh, China's not a country that has rule of law. But then now we're like combing these laws to find the smoking gun of what Huawei would be compelled to do. So the reality is the, Chinese, the, the Communist Party of China uses law selectively as instruments as it sees fit. Um, so I don't think we're going to find an answer per se in these laws. The other thing is that the security obligations in the laws are actually quite vague. And to that extent, I think that sometimes, and, and my team at New America, we sort of talk about this like a sort of Rorschach test, in that if you want to see a threat and a reason to be concerned, you will find it. And if not, you won't. And this is why when we look out internationally at the UK and Australia and the US, what we're likely to find is a spectrum of approaches because of this sort of Rorschach test mentality, right? So depending on your risk threshold, if you want to find, you know, the, the, the national intelligence law is extremely broad in terms of requiring all, and it actually says all Chinese organizations and citizens would be required to support a national intelligence investigation, right? And there are echoes of this in the cybersecurity law there's, you know, Huawei's lawyers will tell you, wait a second, the national, the cybersecurity law only talks about network operators, and Huawei's not a network operator. I would push back and say, yeah, but that term really has no definition, right? So it's, what is your tolerance for risk given this sort of Rorschach test of, of factors? And I would argue that in a crisis situation, that's where the risk becomes more significant as we're talking about now and what exists in that equipment, it becomes impossible to determine what is buggy code, what is an intentional vulnerability that can be exploited. And here I think we have to look at what is Huawei as a commercial company needing 
in succeeding global markets have in its interests. And I'd say right now, it's not in its interest to use those vulnerabilities, but maybe that could change in another scenario. Just want to jump in. Harry Wingo, National Defense University, DECEPTA underscore. Uh, these are just my personal observations. I'm not representing the Department of Defense on this. But I would say uh, this is an age-old issue. Uh, you have great power competition. We're in the middle of it. And if you consider what did electricity mean, what did radio for communications mean, if you consider Detroit in the context of how that set the United States up to have a different outcome in World War II than they would have had if you did not have that industrial uh, capacity. So we've touched on some very important issues, but I think one thing to cover is where 5G fits in uh, the bigger role of economies not just for individual nation states, those are great power competitors. We're ha we happen to be focusing on the United States and China, but if you consider what does this mean for artificial intelligence? What does it mean for the advance of cloud? And I would say Sam rightly uh, brought up Ericsson and Nokia, but if you consider where they were in previous iterations of wireless as it was progressing, and they had their day. It just happens that for 4G, the United States set itself up for LTE. I worked at the FCC before, Senate so Commerce Committee. Um, and I've also been at uh, Google, but I have a perspective from uh, being in the Navy previously. But all of this, think of dual use. Think of the consideration that the national power that will be there, and, and this, the stakes are in the trillions. If you look at uh, the various ways that this new technology can be used, I think the bigger picture is at some point, uh, yes, there are good reasons uh, to do the initial, yes, we don't want this on our networks, that, that, that's clear. But I think the bigger picture is at some point, the best argument against a, a cold north wind is an overcoat. Uh, the best argument against a deluge that could drown you is to learn how to swim. And here's an interesting point on the policy side. Uh, if you look at, there's a Defense Innovation Board draft a piece that came out very recently that talks about uh, what happens when you consider where the United States is going with respect to the part of the spectrum. And that's important. So who here has heard of uh, the issue of sub-6? Six? Sub-6, six, so gigahertz. If you look at the band that's lower down, 6 gigahertz, it's able to penetrate buildings. It has low, uh, further range. You don't have to put as many uh, much equipment out of the network. And if you go further up to where the United States is tending to focus on right now, you go up into the 30 gigahertz range, where you can have more security. It's more direct, a focused beam. Uh, but you have to put out more smaller elements in the network. Uh, the issue is, is that China is looking at sub-six, and that's where a lot of the world is looking at that sub-six part. And there is a very robust debate going on to say, if we don't pivot, if we don't pivot to sub-six, we, we may end up in a deep six, if you will, uh, and I mean by six feet under, and the chance to catch up to what it means to have a first mover advantage in this area. Uh, it's a complicated issue, and I think we'll get to cover some more points, but the bigger thing is to consider the global supply chain and where we will be if we are able to expand our view, look at how we might share or make it easier for U.S. companies and also our allies to get into the ecosystem and not just cede the field to a very important part of the spectrum and that basis upon which this, will, uh, this technology will be deployed. And before I end this first initial just thoughts on this, I would say there's a, there's a concept. I'm at the uh, National Defense University. We're right here in town in Fort McNair. Uh, I'm at the College of Information and Cyberspace. 
And our chancellor, Tom Winkfield, uh, has a way <coughs> of thinking of the challenges that, are, that come here. Think, if you will, of a uh, three concentric circles, a Venn diagram, if you will. At the outer edge, consider the laws of physics or what's possible. That's technology. Whatever we know how to do, and there's technology involved with spectrum and microelectronics, but that's out here. Inside of that, nests the law, and it varies for different nation states. China has their laws, we have our laws. And so the United States, and nested within what's possible, you have the law circle, if you will, and that's what's permissible. You have things uh, like ITAR, like CFIUS, um, you have things that promote spectrum sharing, how long it takes. Uh, what Verizon gets, what AT&T gets, how the spectrum auctions go. And then in the tightest circle you have policy. And we could be flexible on policy, but that has to go through a lot of different things. And if you consider the federal policy that's necessary, and how we have to agree at the national level to address the challenges, like the sub-6 issue that I just mentioned, China is in a, in a very different place than we are, and that goes to how we do innovation, how we do acquisition. So I just wanted to underscore uh, the picture of where this fits into the economy, yes, there's, there's a dual use issue, but in some ways the best security will be getting into the game in a way that matters globally so that we do not see uh, a very important part of the global supply chain on this critical technology. So when you, when you, you say that we're, um, you didn't say ignoring, but we're not paying enough attention to mid-band and low spectrum. Um, and is that at the, at, like at the policy level, at the FCC level, or firms here, are, are not focusing on it enough because they're worrying more about those small cells. Um, which where's the where's the failure? Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't start with failure as much as this is hard. And again, if you look at how the puzzle pieces fit or the chess game that plays out over a period of time, nations are in different places with respect to our democracy. How we um, and I worked at the FCC. I was a spectrum auction advisor before I went over to the Commerce Committee. The amount of time that it takes, how we look at companies competition, uh, that's one of the things that is a strength for the United States, but it also, we have to act within uh, that framework. If you look at China, and if you look at Xi, and you know, his roadmap for 2025, and um, you know, Belt and Road, and their ambitions uh, for how this is going to apply, and then some of the uh, restrictions that they, they have on, you know, facing them are not the same at all. And then if you look at the rest of the players around the globe, uh, South Korea uh, is, is making a run for this. Um, you've got Japan, and then you have the Western nations, but the rest of the world, which way are they going to go? And considering where the United States has been uh, on technology for that 4G sweet spot, I wouldn't say as much as uh, ignoring, but as much as we may have to wake up to how some of the choices that we've made are playing out in the near term, because the first mover advantage on this is absolutely uh, important. Let's come back to the um, to the question of uh, supply chains and sort of the competitive nature of the maybe I should use this um, the competitive nature of the industry. Uh, um, uh, so, if there are only two other major players, um, Nokia and Ericsson, and they're sort of and they're not they're not particularly strong, uh, it seems like we have there are several effects of not having Huawei. One is that prices will go up because there are fewer suppliers. Um, there'll be less competition. They, 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 those two companies might be subject to less uh, competitive pressure to innovate. Um, and you talked about um, AI as well. So China's market is obviously much bigger than ours. And if they're also serving Africa and other countries, that makes their markets even bigger, which gives them 
more you know, training data sets um, for AI, does this risk leaving us even further behind? I mean, this is, of course, setting aside the security issues. Which, um, I don't know how you put those into account, but how do, we, how do we deal with that? Protectionism, and I'm not saying this necessarily for protectionist purposes, but it's not good for innovation. We'll start back down here again. <clears throat> Excuse me. So <clears throat> when you think about the supply chain, you can't just think about the, the OEM that's giving you the final product. There's a really complicated supply chain that, that, that sits behind that. And in particular, companies like um, uh, uh, TI and Qualcomm and others are sort of the existing um, uh, North American powerhouses uh, that sit earlier in the supply chain. Now, of course, they don't have as much impact as, as, as they used to, and in particular, as as China improves their chip fabrication technologies um, in the next decade, probably, Huawei would be able to uh, have the needed process technologies uh, in order to compete directly with, uh, with, with the fabrication processes that some of the North American uh, chip vendors are using. Um, you also need to keep in mind that, that 5G is, uh, the whole core network is, is a, a cloud-first um, mentality. So they redesigned all of the core network services, so instead of being Telecom equipment that is rack mounted in a in a, 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 in, a in a data room, it, it's just apps essentially that live in the cloud, and that makes it very elastic and, and um, the ability to uh, uh, do all kinds of load balancing and move it around inside of a cloud environment. And so, to a certain extent, the skills needed to really get involved in the five G supply chain is not uh, it's not as heavy a lift. It's not all hardware, right? So, to the extent that Silicon Valley is really good at pumping out software startup companies. I think there's some interesting opportunities there uh, for them to, 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 to be able to get more involved in, in that ecosystem. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, like I said, there's a lot of focus on, on the, the final end of this. But of course, we saw uh, just last year with, with ZTE um, when there was the, the embargo on, on their use of Qualcomm. Right? That was 40% of their handsets were using that chipset. So um, uh, in terms of, of creating a uh, a fourth option, if you will, or, or bolstering the options that we have. Um, it's a little bit squishier than that because it's it's a much more complicated and dynamic ecosystem, I think. So I think you're saying that barriers to entry are not as high as we might think they are. So in terms of the time it takes to actually build the pe a piece of code that does function X, uh, the, the barriers are lower. Now, on the other hand, you've got about a decade of technology innovation that happens before XG, whatever, before 6G comes out, right? So behind that is, is, is R&D that leads to intellectual property, that leads to uh, best practices and use cases, that leads to standards, that leads to products, that leads to deployments. So um, what we've seen, particularly with China's uh, impact in the, uh, in the standards community, they've been able to ensure that they have a much bigger piece of that royalty stack um, than they have in the past which gives them an economic advantage, and it also gives them more control over um, the intellectual property licensing needed to, to join that ecosystem. I just wanted to uh, add on to something that uh, Charles mentioned. Uh, for example, I mentioned the uh, focus that China has, and it's in the so-called sub-six uh, part of the spectrum that's relevant, and there's a difference when you're there. Uh, one of the recommendations of the preliminary or the draft uh, defense uh, industrial, uh, sorry, innovation board report was to look at Qualcomm and say they have a portion of the spectrum that they could go after. That if they were to, if we were to pivot and have a focus, so you have some installed base already, you have the ability to start competing and get in there 
uh, in that part as well as the millimeter wave uh, portion of the spectrum. As far as AI goes, why would that matter for 5G? One of the, the key points on this type of technology, you consider what you can do with your phone now, imagine 10x or, or 20x that capability as far as uh, speed, low latency, and for artificial intelligence, the ability for smart city technology, if you will. Think of self-driving cars or drones that can deliver things around cities and to rural areas. Once you can have the compute and have all of that connected and the capabilities and the information flow and how you can, can use that, that is really critical right now. And cloud's already here, but once you add that onto it, uh, that's really important. So if the rest of the world goes there, the scale and the scope uh, that you're able to get to faster than others, it may, it may be very difficult to close that, uh, that gap. Uh, Jamal made a point about uh, state support uh, for Huawei. That is absolutely uh, a critical piece here. If you look at the 25 years for that company to grow, nations act in their own interest. Uh, you had China looking at what the United States was doing, where the, where the, uh, the, the lead was, and through various means, means, unfortunately, including IP theft and then support from the state. Uh, it's been there, but that is what it is. That's an age-old story between uh, nation states. And again, uh, one of the most important things that we can do is take the field and compete, but in a way with an eye towards uh, the new world of competition that we have. Uh, it's, it's a challenging environment. So going back to the issue of competition among the existing players, I really wish that we had data on Nokia and Ericsson the same way that we have it on Huawei, because the oversight board report that was a scathing indictment of buggy code in Huawei, we have no baseline to understand so I sort of, you know, it's right now the narrative kind of benefits uh, Ericsson and Nokia to say that Huawei is particularly buggy, but we don't have any any other data like it in the world. So we don't know if Nokia and Ericsson are equally buggy. We have no, you know, we don't know. I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear if, if, you know, other thoughts on this. Um, I mean, maybe Huawei can pay, use their state subsidies to pay for similar tests to be done on, on, on the others, just which would maybe help its case or not. Sorry, but just actually there's an interesting example on the report that I mentioned, and uh, pretty easy to find at the National Defense University. But Sam, it's interesting, on page 25, uh, there's a direct quote, Nokia, Nokia there's, there's just calling out where Nokia Android handsets had a backdoor. Uh, and so this is something this is something that happens in a lot of places. Um, but I, I would say, again, there is absolutely a cybersecurity threat uh, from China. And as far as the risk vulnerabilities um, and if you're putting software, handsets, all the elements of, of what goes in the network, it's a dangerous environment. Uh, another way to look at this is if uh, we are unable to look at the pivot or if we look at the challenges of just resetting or looking at, at a different approach to, to, uh, to really address what's happening in this space, you also have to get ready for a world where uh, perhaps the United States uh, for time is behind China on this and what that could mean uh, for risks. And you can mitigate risks, but that, that whole approach is a different way. You'll hear people talk about uh, zero trust networks and approaches. You know, it used to be you had a perimeter and then people got past that and that layer defense, but I call it the uh, kind of the night watchman approach. Like you, you lock the doors, but you're always scanning and you just assume that the, you know, somebody's there uh, trying to compromise you. And sometimes that can be friendly as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Sam made a really good point earlier about this question of laws and the laws in China and the laws of the United States. The reality is, is that we have required assistance laws too, right? Our telecommunication providers 
have to comply with CALEA, the Communications Assistance to Law Enforcement Act, right? We have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, right? We require providers all the time to comply with both uh, court orders and other orders uh, to provide intelligence information and to provide surveillance information. This is not some new thing the Chinese invest, invented um, and, that, and that we should be scared about, right? The reality is that we have those orders and those capabilities. At the same time, we've also benefited dramatically over the last you know, two, three decades of building a, a global telecommunications infrastructure that's honed here in the United States, where communications across the globe at times will transit the United States. And as we learned during the debate over, over uh, U.S. surveillance programs, that that was a benefit to the United States and one that we carefully crafted. The reality is we should expect the same for our competitors, right? And our peer competitors, uh, when it comes to this technology and the current phase, is China. And they're laying out a predicate for doing the same thing. They're putting in place the legal capabilities, whether you think they're complying with their own laws or it's because of a closer relationship in that country than we think of a separation between the public and the private sector, right? Whether it's a legal or a simple wink nod, right? And we have, by the way, had those relationships in industry too. We're not, that's not something that's just exclusive to China. But that being said, when you're looking at it from a U.S. national security perspective, right, it doesn't change the fact that whether we have laws like that or not, or we build a system that looks like that or not, when it's our competitor doing it, we have a legitimate reason to be concerned about it and express that concern, try to keep that, that concern at bay um, and encourage our allies to do the same. So there is, there's nothing surprising about what we see taking place here, and there's nothing sort of unusual or different. It's simply what our reaction to it is, being on the other side, on the receiving end of that, of that fight. What I will say, though, is, is unusual um, and has been unusual for the last decade or so um, is the use of, of access uh, to do something different than what nations have always done to one another, right? There's this old saw that gentlemen or gentlewomen don't read each other's mails, right? Everyone knows that's not true. Everyone does do it. And that's sort of the great game, and everyone gets it, and everyone sort of puts up with it, right? What is not historically true, but what has been true in our peer-to-peer -peer or near-peer competition with China uh, is that they have used that access, not just for national security gain, but for economic gain. And that typically was not the methodology that, that nation states at least uh, res respectable nation states utilize. And so we're now in a different world. Maybe that's just the point of the realm and we have to get used to it. Uh, but the U.S. isn't playing that game today, at least not as far as we know. Um, and that's a question of, is that the, is that the way the game is going to be played from here on going forward? And if so, great, let's play it all. Uh, absolutely agree with that. I also wanted to point out uh, what this technology will mean for infrastructure. So if you consider uh, two of the key critical infrastructures that we have. Uh, in the United States, we, we break it down into 16 uh, you know, for Department of Homeland Security purposes, but consider uh, the electric grid and consider tele uh, telecom networks. If you look at where using cloud and artificial intelligence and smart, uh, you know, the smart grid, for example, to get wind and uh, uh, solar power more integrated into the grid, 5G is absolutely going to be uh, important in, in that respect. And if we're forced to have to uh, incorporate these types of uh, critical infrastructure where we have a great uh, power competitor and we have no other option, that has some serious uh, implications. Other things to consider, right? I mentioned self-driving cars. Uh, think of telemedicine. And China is really moving you know, fast on demonstrations uh, of this capability, uh, but the ability in the United States to reach rural areas, to um, just the impacts on healthcare, and you can see the, the impact uh, that this type of technology will have across the board. Uh, and again, the first mover advantage is absolutely essential. So in addition to economic advantage, you're setting up infrastructure that goes to the heart of so many activities for any nation. 
so um, six are off. I, I probably, I, we should go to questions, and I want to make sure people have a chance to ask. But it also, it sounds like the conversation is shifting more to this being um, punishment, right? They stole our IP, therefore we're going to keep them out. Um, and that doesn't seem to me to be, actually, I shouldn't say that. Maybe it is a good response to stealing to stealing IP. But is, is that part of the policy? I don't know if it's part of the policy, but I will say that there are, I oftentimes hear a lot of confusion about what the specific risk with Huawei is. So just to keep our narrative straight, you, know, you have IP theft, you have sanctions violations, um, you, and that is it, and then you have espionage, right? Um, I think policymakers are blurring the lines a bit in sort of thinking about the narrative. I mean, look, when I, I, I just, I recently got back from a, a, a trip to Jedi University and they put, they published a book on the management culture of Huawei, which I thought was fascinating. They have very deep ties with Huawei. Um, and they said, and my takeaway from it is, look, this is a company that has benefited from massive IP theft, state subsidy, but they've layered on top of it an extremely innovative commercial model. You have a lot of state-owned enterprises in China that have benefited from those exact same things and would not be able to compete for a second outside of China, right? So what is it about Huawei? You know, so you have to, you can't just think of, the, I think it's like a hybrid of commercial innovation, IP theft, and subsidy all run in, rolled into one ball at a moment where there is an existential crisis uh, in the US about technological leadership and the relationship between China and the United States. And I think that is also a factor fueling a lot of the Right, discussion. and it seems like, I mean, then, it's the U.S. that will really suffer the harms from not allowing that innovation to end. So I want to actually highlight two other second and sort of third order consequences. Well, I want to, there are two other, when we talk about sort of what are the second and third order consequences that just need to be considered as part of this conversation of what a ban does or doesn't entail. So first one is we talk, you know, we mentioned, um, we talk about Qualcomm and TI and sort of the, the powerhouses in the U.S. in this space. The, the, I think as much as 60% of some of their revenue comes from China, this isn't just about selling out, but that revenue, because we're, we don't have a model of sort of public support in the R&D space in this, that money from the China market is then plowed back into R&D, which is part of their leadership in the 5G space one. We also haven't talked about the trade-offs in terms of rural connectivity. and. Um, Dr. Clancy and I, the, the first time we met was in a, on a congressional hearing last May, House Energy and Commerce Committee, and one of the key questions that was on the table was this FCC proposal that would deny carriers in rural areas access to federal subsidies if they use Huawei or ZTE in their network. And there is a real trade-off involved with cutting off connectivity in these areas where it's not economical to do it. So just to throw that into the mix of factors that have to be weighed. I would also say, you know, the, the rural thing is interesting to me because um, one of the points that was brought up at that hearing and that I know that Congress is very interested in and DOD is very interested in is you have a lot of military bases in rural areas. And if the only way they can get connected to the Pentagon and to other bases is through telecommunications infrastructure that is uh, vulnerable to Chinese interference, that's a non-starter for them. And so I think you're, gonna, you're going to see in the future lawmakers, especially in districts that have those bases, getting a lot more interested in this issue if the Pentagon says the next time we do you know, base realignment and closure, we're going to close down or relocate bases whose only internet comes from a Huawei-based network. Uh, that's when members of Congress get interested. So glad you said that, Eric. Um, if you consider the origins of the internet uh, back to ARPANET or, or DARPA when uh, 
Ben Surf and Paul Kahn and those protocols, but how critical that was. Uh, you know, had implications for command and control at the national level for absolutely the most important things ever. And look where AT&T, Bell, and it just where that was in our nation's uh, national security. This is, if you, if you go over to the military side of things, from my perspective, uh, this is signal. This is command and control. I mentioned the dual use part. That's what makes it tough. And so this is so new, and China is, um, they are moving so fast in this area. It, it would be a different issue if this was like Linux or you had open architectures and there was a different field. But even there, one of the most important changes is where the military is with respect to its ability to come to field, how it relies on commercial technologies and industry, and to not have a U.S. equivalent across the board and to have to rely so much on a great power competitor like China, that's the heart of it. Even more, that's even more direct than saying it's punishment. It's just reality. <laughs> and I think just one point on what Harry said there, which is, um, you know, part of the challenge with Huawei and ZTE is they're a black box, right? Uh, we had congressional hearings, we had the company testified, this is back in 2011, 2012, right? And almost no information was provided. You look at the House Intel Committee's report back in 2012, um, they refused to provide basic information about how their company works, how it's organized, what its responsibilities to the government are, the relations between the government infrastructure and the, and the corporate infrastructure. Um, and, and, and that goes all the way from governance to technology, right? And yes, there are studies done about the way their, their corporate culture and the like, um, but the sort of you scratch it, it's an inch deep and, and, and a mile wide, right? And so uh, part of the challenge is, you know, we're used to in this country and in the West, right, very open corporate cultures that talk about sort of that our companies, their books are open to the public, right? You can see exactly what's going on. They're all publicly traded companies. Um, and you don't have that same level of transparency when it comes to companies like Huawei and ZTE. And that creates its own level of distrust, right? And so... Um, if, if these companies want to compete in the global environment and they're going to do it um, on a peer competitor basis, well, then we should expect them to be as open about uh, their, their infrastructure and their finances and their relationship with governments and the like. Right? To a fault, the U.S. government talks about what it does, what authorities it has, and what it doesn't have. And you know, at times, that results, in, results from uh, public revelations about classified programs. But by and large, right, we know what the U.S. government is doing. Um, we know what companies have to do to comply with those orders. Not always, to be clear. I'm not suggesting it's it's universally transparent, but um, it's not unusual to expect that we would demand that of, of other companies if we're going to let them into our core infrastructure. Do you think their approach has changed at all since 2011 and 2012, or is it? Certainly that they've become more open and more and more willing to talk about it. That being said, are we at the point where they're like a publicly traded company in the United States? Absolutely not. Um, and is part of that in response to this pressure that's been put on them? Absolutely. And so does that mean let off the pressure, right? I, I, think, I think maybe not, right? And I'm not convinced by this sort of, well, we're going to lose a mass amount of innovation if we keep this at bay. I do think, I'm more convinced by the argument, it's like saying it's a tie, than I am by uh, if you're going to lose massive innovation if you don't, if you don't take, this, uh, take this technology in. I think we've got the most innovative economy in the world today. Uh, that continues to be true even as um, we see intellectual property being stolen um, and as we see it being repurposed. We still continue to innovate rapidly. Will we always hold that advantage? The answer is probably no. We, we already see that gap eroding dramatically. Um, but the question becomes, right, is it about technology innovation, is it about national security, or is it a balance between the two? And if it's a balance, it's not crazy to say we will to trade some for the national security benefit. We should take some questions. Um, oh, right. <laughs> Somebody must have a question. 
you don't, I'm going to keep asking. Does Scott know we ask questions? Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Um, all right, so. Um, as, as, the, as, the, as the technology is developing, so it's cloud-based, um, and they're mostly apps, so it's moving more and more for software rather than, uh, rather than hardware. Um, so it seems like that has kind of two effects. One is that, like you said, entry is easier because the you know, good coders in it might be more, uh, it, it facilitates um, you know, Silicon Valley-style innovation, perhaps. Um, but it also seems like these problems we're talking about are much worse um, because it's more things that you have to check. It's harder, the more different types of software to check at. Is there a long-term solution to this kind of problem? So, uh, yeah, so the, the, as the supply chains get more complex, um, the software gets more complex. I mean, in general, the complexity level in 5G is, is an order of magnitude greater than, than 4G because of all of the new uh, capability it seeks to deliver as part of uh, particularly phase two of 5G. Um, so, uh, just a, an interesting example from, from, the, from the fallout of the UK report, um, there was an analysis done looking at um, um, OpenSSL. So OpenSSL is a, uh, a library uh, that provides cryptographic functions. And uh, it, it, it gained visibility a few years ago when a, a massive bug was found in it, uh, the Heartbleed uh, uh, bug uh, that allowed um, uh, the, the recovery of, of private keys uh, remotely from a, from a system. Um, and if you look at the Huawei system, again, there's this whole question of how you do source code review. Um, one of the other issues in, in there was, was what's known as binary equivalence. So even if you have the source code, knowing that that source code is, is the actual binary code that's on the system it right now is, 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 is pretty much impossible. Uh, but if, uh, there, was a, there was a study that was done on those binaries, and they found like four different versions of OpenSSL had been compiled into the code on, on, on the Huawei system. Um, one of which was old enough that it actually was vulnerable to some of these, uh, uh, the Heartbleed uh, uh, bug in particular. All right, so this just gives you a, a, a view of, of how complicated the software supply chains are. Um, these software supply chains are, are coming from open source products, from uh, commercially available uh, licensed code to software that's developed in-house. And being able to verify and, and check all of that is, is, is extremely difficult. Um, so, I mean, companies have challenges doing that on their own products. Um, and when the, when, for example, when DOD has a, has a program where they want to see a higher level of, of vetting and verification of that code, um, it can triple or quadruple the cost of, of that software development effort because and of all, yeah, end time, right, because of all the additional layers that are on top of that. So um, I guess my concern is that if, if here in the U.S. we focused on trying to we wouldn't be competitive in cost or schedule if we had tried to apply uh, a greater level of software engineering rigor to, to that than, um, than others. And certainly we've seen time and time again that open source isn't necessarily the solution to uh, the needed transparency that, that, that prevents the bugs because, again, we keep finding major vulnerabilities in open source software. Um, so get, I don't know if that, that answers your question, but I'm just trying to get at, at how, how the complexity and the software focus still creates, a, is, is, is a whole set of challenges, maybe a slightly different set of challenges, but still uh, um, creates a lot of complexity that it's not clear the, the best way to address. Just one point on complexity, uh, great points. Again, consider self-driving cars as an example, something we're really pushing forward, and not just in cities, but trucks and 
what that means for commerce and our way of life, and the integrated, the chipsets, the way that that service will interact with this, this type of system, wow. <laughs> and that's just one example. Uh, telemedicine is another, and I, I think the details are hard. Um, the attack surfaces that open up, but again, the most important thing is to make sure that we set sail as well. And uh, this is an age-old story. If you peel back, there's been examples of this type of challenge uh, and competition on, on technology throughout history. But we have to remember the impact of the laws and maybe even more importantly, how nimble we are in policies. And we have to make sure that we, we're not holding ourselves back from being nimble enough to take the field as well. Good afternoon. My name, my name is Peter Fatelnik. I'm working for the European Union delegation. I'm not sure if that is working. Uh, imagine, so, so the question for the panel would be, imagine uh, your country and maybe a set of other countries would stop using the equipment of a certain manufacturer. Can you play through the scenario, how, how would that world look like? What would that mean for the international telecom operators, which are global companies in many cases? What would that mean in terms of security? How would networks look differently? What would that mean, for instance, you're spoken about innovation for 6G? So how would that differ from what we have today if, if you would make that assumption? Peter, I'll jump in. I, I think it's uh, an excellent question. And, and one thing that makes us so difficult is we're watching this play out in front of us as we speak. <laughs> so that, that's part of the challenge. Um, going back again to uh, the, the draft report uh, that the Defense Innovation Board had, one of the interesting, they have three suggestions at the end of it. One of which I thought was very interesting on the policy side, which would be to say some things can be open and maybe take an approach where you look at tariffs and you actually look for things like bad past behavior, um, not being open or transparent, and that you look at a tariff regime, especially amongst, you know, say, NATO partners or countries, and that's a different way to encourage uh, a type of activity. But as far as to your question directly, what if we were to not um, go with a specific uh, technology? I think you have to distinguish again dual-use uh, aspect of all of this. That's what makes it so tough, right? And you have, with the United States and with uh, China, the decision of, of what 5G means, you know, as far as with national security on that aspect, and that's that's hard to unpack. So as far as where, how it would play out, we, we haven't seen yet um, how this will be global <coughs> as, we, as we move forward even faster. But China, China is starting to deploy this. They've made hundreds of billions of dollars uh, of investment and I think all of this, we're going we're gonna to know more in a couple months on this issue <laughs> as far as where your question is going and then we know now. But I'm sorry, that doesn't exactly answer you know, what you know, the EU is on this right now. But I'm curious, what, what's your, what, what, what's the, um, how do you think this plays out in the short term? It's true, I also forgot my crystal ball at home, so. <laughs> I would add to that that we could be in an environment where third-party countries are in a position of choosing between Chinese and non-Chinese vendors. And to, to some extent, a lot of extent, that from a, a, a pure segregation perspective is going to be impossible in many ways when you think about having to connect with networks that are supplied by Huawei 
Um, and the standard setting process, where potentially as many as 25% of stand standards could you know, be sort of coming out of, out of Huawei or other Chinese telecom companies. So if that's the, to the extent that that type of segregation is even possible, but I do think that we are looking at an environment where you could have a choice between Chinese and non-Chinese vendors, and you get into the bifurcation issue. So just a, a quick comment on, on what it would look like here in the US. First, I'll note that, that Huawei has a extremely small market share here in the U.S. So a ban at this point uh, would not have a significant impact on Verizon and AT&T in particular um, because they already have their 5G roadmaps that are, are built around Nokia and Ericsson uh, equipment. Um, I think we do have, uh, the, the, there is of course the, the FCC rulemaking ongoing around uh, use of um, uh, universal service fund subsidies. So the, the issue here is that um, many rural carriers uh, need subsidies to afford the capital investment of deploying a new generation of technology. Um, the universal service fund is, a, is money that's set aside at the FCC specifically to help subsidize those carriers. And there's a rulemaking underway right now that would, would ban Huawei and um, uh, 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 ZTE products there. And so, so many rural carriers have basically indicated that Without those subsidies, um, they are uh, uh, wouldn't have the, the needed capital to deploy 5G. Right, so you see, might see a, a slower uh, 5G deployment just because of higher costs um, uh, in, in, in rural areas. Um, in terms of uh, uh, so, yeah, I think I think that's the other thing I want to highlight is is this Defense Innovation Board report has been mentioned a couple times. I uh, just want to provide a little bit of context on, on sort of the, some of what the Pentagon's been working on for the last several months. Um, there are four different panels at the Pentagon that have been doing studies on 5G. Uh, the Defense Innovation Board just released their recommendations six days ago, and you can find them online. Just Google Defense Innovation Board 5G study, um, and, and they have their set of recommendations there. Um, and we've talked some about the different recommendations that, that, are, that are part of that. Uh, the Defense Science Board is going to be releasing their study soon, which from what I understand has a lot more detail and uh, some more provocative proposals around uh, uh, what, uh, what we might do. Uh, the Defense Business Board is also working on a study. Um, not quite sure when theirs is going to be complete, but it's supposed to be done soon-ish. Um, and then all three of those studies roll into the Defense Policy Board study, um, which is supposed to be released in June. Uh, which will integrate and synthesize all this into uh, what should be a, 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 an overall strategy, at least on the defense side of, of 5G. So I thought that might be helpful context, given it's the Defense Innovation Board uh, studies come up a couple of times. Yeah, I guess one last thing to say on the segregation of the markets. I mean, I, it's not something that is all that unusual, right? Um, as, as Charles pointed out today, we have a segregated system, right, of the, the certain Western countries simply don't adopt Huawei gear, right? Most, 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 most notably the United States and Australia, um, but it's, it's not, you know, it, and the rest of the world does. And so we have that scenario today and we're putting people to that test at some level, right? There's been discussions of not sharing intelligence if people are using Huawei gear. I, I tend to think those are, over, those are overblown and probably not, not realistic, um, but those conversations are being had for this very reason. Um, at the same time, it's not like this is the first industry in which we've talked about segregated hardware, right? Our defense industry buys American predominantly, right? Now, that fades away when you start going down deeper into supply chain, you start talking about chipsets, you start talking about, start talking about trusted foundries, you start getting a very murky area where 
Um, you know, some of the same problems you were talking about with software apply in the hardware scenario too. So our supply chains may have significant problems anyhow, but the idea that that, that countries or, or, or allies in, in, in a given marketplace don't buy from segregated marketplaces and it works just fine, it doesn't destroy innovation, it doesn't, it doesn't create a marketplace that's unable to interoperate, um, uh, I think is, is, is a concern that's somewhat overblown. That being said, I think we have to recognize, again, with this whole idea about standing on, on the beach at, 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 at high tide, that the vast majority of the world is buying Huawei gear right, and is adopting and implementing it for the same reason um, that we've given before, which is that it's cheaper and it's, it benefits from all subsidies and it works. And on that last point, I want to thank Charles for putting things in context as far as, you know, Defense Innovation Board and what's coming after. But that point about market share in the rest of the world is, is key because other nations, they're thinking, hey, we need to buy something and make it works. And so this is the point about um, looking hard at how we're doing things here, being, having some humility about our, our share of the market and the size and the world we're going into, and really this is a tough technological and policy question of how do we again not not miss the boat not stay out of it and it's not it's not easy uh, to design that so and the stakes again they're so important because of the role that information plays or at least uh, the technology that allows information in, in this world of cyberspace and this is one of the you know not all critical infrastructures are created equally and you look at telecom, it is dual use uh, to the biggest degree. It matters absolutely for economics, but it is the stuff that wars are fought with as well. Um. Oh, sorry. She's. Uh, Jennifer. Um, Jennifer Zeng from the Epoch Times. Uh, my first question is, uh, despite the U.S. government is uh, repeatedly warning against Huawei's, uh, I think, uh, risk of security, I understand in the past uh, World Conference or was some sort of Barcelona, Huawei was still able to get contact, I think, from six, eight countries. So my question is, uh, why the, the repeated warning from the U.S. government has not stopped Huawei from gaining its momentum, and is Huawei already unstoppable? If if not, so what it will take to to stop its uh, gaining more inroads uh, in this 5G network? And my second question is, I must admit I don't understand many of what you are talking about because I'm very ignorant in the technical side. So, so my question is, could you give us a very simple summarize of what exactly are the costs and benefits of banning Huawei? Thank you. I'll take the first question on why other countries are moving forward with Huawei contracts. I mentioned earlier that the risk that I'm the most concerned about is the in a crisis, in a worse scenario, what could Huawei be compelled to do by the Chinese government, which is a sort of hypothetical unknown. But this is where I think other there are other governments that are less concerned about a war or having China as an adversary. Um, and so that's a risk tolerance that they're willing to take because it seems a more remote possibility, if that is the, the, the greatest concern. I would also say, though, I mean, you know, uh, uh, in writing about kind of 
the, the way that China has been able to get so much um, market share, both with, through its companies and also just political market share, what you find is, um, we haven't talked yet about Africa, but the, the Belt and Road Initiative has been phenomenally successful for them in Africa, um, where there are many more incentives to buy uh, inexpensive equipment that can create this lifeline for communities that, to a degree that is sort of an inconceivable for most of the people in this room, that is just lacking throughout that continent. So, you know, you see time and time again the choice to buy inexpensive equipment because most of the risk is hypothetical. I would also say that we have seen some instances where that that risk has become real. So, for example, China helped to build the headquarters of the African Union. And uh, a few years ago, during a security sweep, they actually discovered that the facilities had been had been bugged, that there was a security vulnerability in the infrastructure in the building. And uh, and that's that's the one that we know about. And can so the question is then... Can we drill yeah. down on it a bit? Because is it possible, and I don't know, maybe for Dr. Fancy, you know, is it possible that that data could have been sent to Shanghai without Huawei's knowledge or not? What's the technical perspective on the African Union case? Um, good question. So I, I don't know all the, all the specifics of that case. Certainly there are, um, are, are plenty of ways that third parties could have done things like that. Um, with or without support, but I, I'd have to I'd have to review the, the technical specifics to, to be able to comment on, on that directly. But the point, I mean, but the, but the larger point is right that um, that China is spending a lot of money around the globe to buy influence and to buy credibility and to buy economic opportunities and to buy access, whether that access is intelligence access or or, or political access. Right? As you just Africa is a great example across the entire continent. China's building parliament buildings. Uh, you go to you go to you go to you just go just go to Djibouti, right? Where for the long time the, the U.S. and the French had a had a military facility there, right? China's built a military facility right next door, and they built the parliament building there in Djibouti, right? Now, is that parliamentary building wired for surveillance? I don't know. Is it reasonable to expect it might be? Sure. Is that a risk that the Djiboutians were willing to take because they knew China was going to invest a ton of money and build a parliament building they could afford? Sure. Right. I, you know. These are trade-offs that countries make all the time, um, you know. And as Sam pointed out, it, it may be a partly a, an economic calculus of who's our friend and who's our enemy, and, and are we really a competitor? Are we really going to find a fight a war with China? Of course not. And so, does it matter to us? Do we have that much information that we care about? Maybe not. Right? Does it does it matter a lot to the U.S. government that the Djiboutian Parliament, where we built a military base and conduct all sorts of operations from, might be owned? Absolutely. Is that okay? Sure. Is it okay for us to be concerned about that and, and raise objections and put pressure on them to not take that money and not take that building? Sure. Right. This is this is just a again. It, it, we act as though five G is some sort of new thing that nobody's ever seen before, um, or that the role of China and using its companies to get into uh, into other economic markets or or conduct surveillance like is something new that just happened in the last five years. This game has been played for decades, if not hundreds of years. Right? We have played it better than most, right? And it's just it's part of the nature of business. But the idea somehow that we should pretend like it's not a real thing and that we're not concerned about it and not and not and not act on our own national security, it just would be blind also. Uh, great question, Jennifer. I would say let me start with the benefit uh, first. The benefit up front is that there are real risks and vulnerabilities that you stop. And Jennifer made this point earlier by saying you have a ban. I think the cost, the cost, however, 
may be that that answer may make it easier for us to, to kind of narrow our vision and not fight for it. This is contested space, and I agree. This goes back. This is how business is done. And to think that that is uh, going to be the sum of the answer, I think there's a risk or the cost might be that we don't realize how much this is a struggle, something that we have to fight for and contest and earn on a global marketplace. And that is what we, we shouldn't be afraid of that. But we have to absolutely recognize that the way our policy down the spectrum policy and, and how we have already set the field you know, with our major players, the telecom, that makes it hard. But my concern, I think the cost of that ban, maybe that if we have kind of a narrow vision and don't realize that just as we fought for many technologies, uh, we, we have to convince the rest of the world. And I think part of what's coming out in these reports that have been mentioned goes to some of the suggestions for that, and that's important. I'll just throw out a, an interesting anecdote uh, uh, along the lines of some of the comments so far. Um, I think an interesting case study would be uh, would be looking at, at Iraq. So. Um, when, when the U.S. invaded, we pretty much destroyed the majority of the telecom infrastructure to the extent that there was telecom infrastructure there. Um, the U.S. reconstruction effort was, was funding the deployment of, at the time, Nortel equipment as the, as the Western solution to really try and bring the infrastructure of the country back online. Um, and we were doing that kind of from our power center in, in Baghdad. Meanwhile, um, China and Huawei uh, came in sort of in, in, in the north in the Kurdish region and began uh, uh, using their subsidies to, to push Huawei equipment out as part of the reconstruction effort of, of, of the country uh, and their own efforts. And so there was this really interesting environment where you had two competing national interests and, and two competing technology bases looking to vie to, to get a, this country back online um, as sort of a proxy almost uh, a decade ago for uh, the, the struggle that we're in today. Um, I think what's interesting is ultimately the decision was that, that these two ecosystems needed to work because it was more important for Iraq to have a functioning telecommunications backbone uh, than it was for any one particular technology company or national entity to win this, this proxy battle. Um, so at the end of the day, you kind of have half the country run by Huawei and half the country run by more Nortel. Now, of course, ironically, Nortel has since gone out of business um, because of uh, consolidation in, in the telecommunications space. Um, but again, just a, an interesting anecdote from, from about a decade ago of, of where we've sort of seen this play out. And, and interestingly, if you read Chinese military, Chinese PLA writings, which I've spent a lot of time doing, the Iraq situation has been, I cannot, I cannot state how much, how influential that has been in shaping Chinese military thinking in terms of the importance of what they call integrated electronic warfare and how taking out the telecommunications infrastructure gave the U.S. such a great advantage, and that has been really instrumental in their sort of war planning. So I think that's a great anecdote on many levels. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think your, your, your point is exactly right. And it's, it, our success in using our advantage in technology and telecommunications has informed their understanding of how they have to lead in that space. And so, again, this is just another aspect of what's old is new, right? And and it, it, this, this idea, I keep coming back to this idea that somehow we're in this new, totally different environment where we didn't play this game before, and oh, it's so shocking they're doing it. It's not shocking they're doing it. It's also not shocking that we're responding to what we know they're doing. Right? These responses and this back and forth is a very, uh, is a very sort of I think what you could, what you would expect in this environment, and it's not unusual. And these debates we're having over 
should 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 we convince our allies not to buy it? Right. This is exactly the debates that were had decades ago about how to how to sh how to how to put your influence into place. Um, and here we're just talking about through technologies. It's no different than uh, than building of roads or ship channels or um, or or any other mercantilist policy from back you know 100 years ago. Again, what's, we live in a world where uh, cyber war and uncertainties on where that's going. We have we could we could spend a whole another session talking about um, where those norms are developing. Uh, the idea of how that we're going to shape those values, and this goes straight to that because from, you know the challenge is when you're talking about this type of infrastructure, it is a very place where future wars. I mean, there's activities now, but if you consider that's the challenge of putting infrastructure in your nations, and then that's where you're forcing, and there's this pressure uh, to pick sides. Now, if we could conceive of different ways, sort of have some type of, of space where all, you know, different flowers bloom, if you will, but the reality, again, goes to how important signal communications, uh, all those aspects have always been in warfare, but now you play on top of that the things that are going to happen in this domain. Artificial intelligence is an example. When you have the speed, uh, the low latency, and the ability to talk to machines and, and gather data and have the very system itself be an important part of cloud and of compute, you, you can see why, again, there's, there's such, it's a tough, tough issue uh, to, to parse out. Uh, Richard, well, with the uh, West of America, a reporter, uh, thank you very much for the wonderful discussion. And, uh, I think I guess my question is kind of uh, echoes Jennifer's question: Is Huawei unstoppable? And uh, I, in particular, I want to ask: Do you think the U.S. strategy is sustainable right now? The U.S. trying to push Huawei out and uh, trying to uh, convince its allies not using Huawei products. But uh, I think uh, not too long ago, Huawei founder Ren Zhongfei uh, did an interview with a CBS reporter. Basically, he said, he claimed that it is impossible for the US to ban Huawei because their products are so good and they're at a very good price. And, and I, I, want to, I want to know what the eventual equilibrium will be. And uh, does the US really seeking to uh, eliminate I guess my perspective would be that um, I think in 5G in particular, the, the ship has sailed to a certain extent, right? We have three vendors and it's gonna be a, um, a, a tug of war between Nokia, Ericsson, and Huawei for control of, of market share in 5G. Um, I think where there's opportunity is really around 6G, right? As I mentioned earlier, these technologies take a decade, you've got decade, a decade to create a new generation of cellular technology. and as, as 5G is getting deployed, now people are beginning to set their sights on, well, what is 6G? So I think if, if the U.S. is uh, looking to have a, a, a disruptive strategy, it needs to bring new vendors to the market, we need more OEMs, um, and uh, the U.S. needs to kind of get back in the game with 6G by showing national leadership and uh, by launching large-scale federally funded research and development programs, um, those are the sorts of conversations that are beginning to happen, um, but but they're they're not quite mature yet. I would say. So, um, just maybe think of something. Great great point. I agree with that. I think uh, we've mentioned AI a couple times, but what has been mentioned is how AI can actually uh, go towards things like six G or even and the sharing that'll be required. Apologies. Um, that'll be required now. How can that change uh, the approach? If you look all the spectrum that's out there, 
if you look at you know, where the United States is, the military is, is in a portion of that lower band, and you could have a different type of deployment. Should turn this off. <laughs> so you have a different type of deployment that's happening. Yeah, there he is. Um, so the technology, uh, I agree that's interesting to look at, but again, I, I would also say that how important this issue is in, in, the, in the near term, it's, it's critical. Maybe a different way to look at this also is all the good that can be done uh, with the deployment uh, period. And my point, again, about having uh, both both nations are going to try to convince the world uh, about you know, the importance of this. But we're, we're having a national security uh, discussion. And that's you know, the hard part is this has implications for, uh, for national security. And that's why there's this huge concern uh, that's there. I, one, one thing on what Charles said, which is, I think, a really important point, which is that we don't, we, we in, as Americans tend to be very innovative because we think about next year, next month, next week, next year, maybe five years out. We're not looking at the 10, 15, 20-year strategy, right? But China certainly is. China's looking at a 50, 80, 100-year <coughs> strategy. Um, and uh, to the extent that we're going to get ahead of this problem, whether it's on AI or 6G, we've got to start investing, as Charles correctly says, in basic research. Um, in the next generation of, and, and not just six, but seven G and, and, and going further out. We have, as a country, uh, forgotten how to do that. Uh, our our, our uh, budget uh, decisions um, don't go in that direction. The government has gotten out of that business uh, in large part in, in favor of private industry. And private industry has a motivation to make money tomorrow and next year and not and not worry so much about five years because we'll have to innovate out of that. Um, and so I think there really is an important point to make, particularly in this town and to, to Congress, which is that it's one thing to talk about banning Huawei, it's one thing to talk about banning Kaspersky, but if you're not investing in the long-term future of this country, whether it's whether it's with STEM education, which which Harry's written a lot and talked a lot about, right, or, or the investments in basic research that Charles is talking about, right, we're not going to end up surviving this. It's just a matter of, of being swamped in the long run. If you've got, if you're going to get ahead of this, you've got to play the long game, and we're not good at playing the long game. So I absolutely agree with that. History has many examples. Uh, I'm a Navy person. One of the oldest had to do with uh, the struggle between it was Xerxes and the Greeks. And there was uh, Strategos, Themistocles, who convinced his nation to build a new type of warship. Uh, Persians who were on their way had a certain type. The Greeks took the field. It changed everything, the course of history. More recently, look at the bold type of move that you had Winston Churchill, who realized you needed 19-inch guns instead of 17-inch on battleships. And as a necessity, you had to move from coal to oil. You didn't even have oil in place, uh, you know, in the Mideast at that point. But it was such a big investment in the future, and it changed everything. And he was right about that investment. You could look at nuclear in the United States, somebody like a Rickover, and very much a dual-use uh, technology. Or even going further back, the Manhattan Project, how much that cost out of uh, GDP. Uh, or maybe an even better example was the origins of the type of uh, cyber compute world that we live in, Bletchley Park and the Allies in World War II. And look at the difference that that made, and that underscores uh, how important this realm of microelectronics and information, and the stakes are very high, but as Janel said, and I absolutely agree with this, we have to invest, we have to take the field, but do it in a way that, that recognizes uh, we, we have great power, a great power competitor uh, who's giving us definitely run for our money on this. Uh, okay. 
Um, hi, my name is Jens. I work at the German Embassy. Uh, thank you for, for uh, being here. It's really uh, very helpful. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, mitigation? Um, uh, you said uh, at some point it's, it's not possible to check your network, but what can we do inside a certain network? Also, given the situation that some allies, and you, you mentioned Europeans, uh, will not completely uh, uh, yeah, uh, skip uh, Huawei. We will, will deal with some Huawei non-networks. Can we work on mitigation? Can we concentrate and focus on critical infrastructure, for example? Uh, what's your take on that? So from a mitigation perspective, um, of course, there's all sorts of different best practices around, around mitigating uh, uh, risks and vulnerabilities. Um, I think what we've seen so far demonstrated, particularly in the, in the UK report, is, um, is that the immediate concern is, is really buggy code, right? And buggy code can lead to exploitation. And so um, in terms of, of mitigation, being able to monitor and detect and, and know when faults have happened, whether they are the result of any sort of direct nefarious action or just a, a random, uh, that something crashed. Uh, being able to detect and, and uh, recognize when that's happened and be able to have plans to quickly recover um, and, and mitigate those is, I think, the concern, or is, is what is needed from a mitigation perspective. I guess the other, to get back to Sam's point earlier, the other mitigating factor would be don't go to war with China, and then um, you don't need to worry about all the rest of it. <laughs> um, although, again, that's... <laughs> Challenging. So, I mean, the, the, the real concern is, is not what's in the not what the systems can do today, but what they could do if, uh, if, if if the capabilities were augmented through software updates or other mechanisms to uh, add malicious content. Right, My, right now Huawei has a, a I'm sorry, twenty eight percent market share as part of the global telecommunications infrastructure, and that's enough of a of a global platform that they could launch wide-scale internet disruption uh, and take down the entire internet if, if there was a motivation to do so as part of any kind of, uh, of, of global conflict. And um, that banning, banning future growth, I mean, they already have enough of the internet uh, to be able to do things of that nature. Certainly we see a few times a year where uh, Chinese telcos uh, accidentally hijack large segments of the internet uh, to demonstrate their ability to reroute the core traffic flows of the internet. Um, so again, they're, they're already sufficiently connected in, in many of these cases that if we're in a warfare scenario, I'm skeptical that there's any mitigation that, that would be feasible just given the, the global presence. Um, so I don't know that's not a very positive I should outlook. also say, despite what I said about Iraq and electronic integrated network warfare that the PLA are sort of planning for, I think we also have to get away from just this sort of DOD narrative of looking at the issue. And China also does not want to go to war with us. A lot, I hear oftentimes a lot of discussion of China's intentions, China's doing this, but China's not monolithic. And when I look at the, the private sector in China, and I think a lot of people think, oh, there is no private sector in China, it's all the government. That's actually not true. Um, and I would argue that even, you know, Huawei aside, I mean, companies like Alibaba and Tencent are probably more powerful than many government ministries, and in fact have oftentimes butt heads with their own government because their ambitions in many ways can be undermined by and so let's just keep that in mind that this is not a monolithic entity that we're talking about. I would say you, you, you also have just the type of cyber security mitigation efforts that are out there and are current now, state of the art. Uh, you can look at things like segmentation. You can look at the zero trust approach uh, that I mentioned. And you'll see this with some of the very large uh, US players in this space. Uh, I worked at Google for a couple of years. I know that uh, Beyond Corp is, is, an, is an example of an effort that they have. You can find that it's Beyond C-O-R-P, and I think that's, you know, we've got research things out there. 
look at Amazon just in the headlines, which you can read in the papers uh, about it. There's a couple days ago a story about uh, Amazon and other companies that want to go after uh, business with having a cloud that would be relevant for you know one of our intelligence agencies, and how that approach when you realize you're going to be on zero trust networks, and how do you look at the engineering, uh, the people, the processes, the technology? How do you stay agile? But one thing that we can't do is have this old uh, top-down, very static uh, you know, type of approach because the world moves a lot faster than that. So again, we have to set sail, we have to be agile, and I think for mitigating the world where we have both, both choices, um, we have to take that, you know, that, that just goes with the territory to keep safe. Uh, all right, one more question, and then you've got a wrap. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak up. I'm madly thanks. So I'm, I'm Richard Spearman. I'm the uh, Group Corporate Security Director for Vodafone. I'm visiting the U.S. In fact, for these sorts of conversations. So this afternoon's conversation has been um, really, really interesting. Um, I just uh, we talk a lot about the complexity of, of the sort of electronic and technological environment, but it does seem to me we're in a really complicated policy and legal environment as well. And I, and I do think. Um, you know, I worry as much about our ability to do that at speed with, and, and bringing in the right, um, you know, the, the right uh, speakers and the, and, and the right expertise because your technology, and I'm a historian, so you know, I've got, I'm, I'm definitely not a technologist, although I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with my technology colleagues, but quite how do we get this grouping together um, and how do we actually bring policymakers into a space where they're able to, in that agile and, and necessary and far-sighted way, start to make the, the, the policies that we need. I, the other thing I'd just say on, on to, to, uh, to Sam's point, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the industry itself, the, I'm not going to talk about Vodafone here particularly, but the industry, the sector as a self, itself is under a lot of challenges at the moment. So the whole business around what governments want from the sector is, is you know, it can be overwhelming in terms of they want money for spectrum, they want universal service obligations, they want you to reach the remotest farm by next Friday. They want to you know, even out the economic um, benefits of technology by making sure we get it everywhere. They want investments in fiber. They want uh, increased uh, investment in cyber security. Uh, you know, spectrum auctions can be extremely expensive and variable in price and cause investor worries. So, so there's, a, there's a real um, piece of work here too, I think, about the relationship between policymakers and, and providers. The last bit I'd just say is it seems to me we're in a really interesting space. We've got an opportunity here to bring sort of greater society into this debate as well, because if you think about driverless cars, telemeds, the future, um, everyone's got an interest in better safety in this space, and lifting up all of the supply chain to deliver that in a 5G world is going to be a challenge whether it's Huawei or not, but um, great conversation. Thanks Richard, I'm glad you said that, just reminded me of a very important thing, we have this magic way of having this thing sort out, uh, at least for democracies like, like ours, uh, if you look at the United States and the UK, politics. And so my question, considering the United States, when does this rise to the level of election 2020 issue? When are we going to see that? Because that it's that important. And I think we have to see that uh, happen, you know, definitely. Another question on the policy and legal point, I'm absolutely there with you. Um, and I would say, how do you have leaders or how do you show leaders something so technical? And I, I know we're looking at things like visualization technology. Could there be a role uh, for something like XR, if you will, uh, uh, virtual reality or augmented reality in a way to, to conceive of very complicated, uh, multi-variable, like just things like this, that you could take somebody who's not technical whatsoever, a senator or someone, and say, hey, look at this, and 
change this around, look at this, and have things play out. So type of collaborative modeling, if you will, and how do you get people involved with that? 